when I was in college and uh, preparing for the ministry, once I knew what I wanted to do, like a lot of folks, you do an internship. And so in the evenings, I'd ride shotgun with a guy named Larry all over the great metropolis of Lincoln, Illinois. Uh, so that was fun. But uh, Larry uh, was a low-key, soft-spoken, conventional person, as conventional as they come. And I'd venture to guess, I didn't ask him a lot about his life, but I'd venture to guess he probably followed the same routine every day. I could imagine him waking up at the same time, pressing his shirt and slacks, packing a sandwich for lunch, you know, sipping his coffee over the Lincoln Courier, and uh, all that before heading off to some office where he probably stamped the same time card every day and sat behind a desk and followed the same routine. It's probably, you know, if Larry were to leap off a diving board and do a cannonball, I doubt there'd be very many waves or even a splash. You know, he was a make-no-waves kind of guy. But at least once a week, uh, someone would visit the church, and they'd give the person's name or the family's name to Larry, and it was Larry's privilege and delight to go to their home and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, And that's where I came in. Larry, I'd ride shotgun with Larry and uh, to all these different homes and places, and it was awesome. And I, I learned through that experience, you don't have to be flashy to share Jesus You don't have to be clever or cool or any of that. You really just have to be faithful. And Larry was very faithful in sharing Christ with folks. And uh, he may have been Clark Kent by day, but he became a super apostle by night and and went on an adventure every night. And I think that was what drew his whole day. But but, uh, as we sit down with different folks and share the gospel, one of the things we do is we share all the benefits of trusting Jesus. And that was a lot of fun. You know, things like the assurance of God's love, the assurance of complete forgiveness of all your sin, the hope of resurrection, the gift of eternal life, the promise of an eternal dwelling that Christ is preparing for us with the Father, Uh, the promise of not only life to the full, but life uh, everlasting. Uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit to give us power for like living this life in a way that would otherwise be impossible. Uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit producing his fruit in our life. That we would take on the character of Christ by his work. Uh, love, joy, peace, all those wonderful things. Uh, the new birth. Adoption into the family of God. Uh, to be part and a member of Christ's body on earth, that God's filling the universe with his glory and and the church is his instrument. The promise of daily help and strength, victory over sin, that when you're struggling, God provides a way out. All these things, a new purpose for life. And people's mouth would water, of course, and I mean ours does as well. But then at a certain point, the conversation would always turn and Larry would add, a few more things to the list. He'd mentioned the promise of suffering and the promise of persecution. And we would have a very serious conversation with folks about the cost of discipleship, about the challenges and troubles that are there inherent in the life of following Jesus. Uh, I think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did the same thing. He clearly had folks in mind and he was extolling the promises of the kingdom and the poor in spirit, 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and those who mourn, you'll be comforted, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be filled, and on and on he went. But Jesus would add in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he would say, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. That's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus had a full conversation with people. The blessings, uh, also the responsibilities, the cost of following Jesus. And uh, I think we do well to take the same approach. Now, in the Gospel of John, as we're reading along, John 15 becomes one of those moments where Jesus has a fuller conversation with his disciples than ever before, and their eyes are opened. And, uh, you know, I think of a lot of us, maybe we would like to fly under the radar in life. Uh, We may want to have the uh, make no waves kind of lifestyle of a lunchbox Larry, if you will. But that really isn't the reality of the Christian life. Because Jesus says, if you love me, and a love is to obey. It's not just to nod at Jesus and be warm towards Jesus. It's to live his life out, to let him be our life. That if you love Jesus, if you obey his commands, you're going to be persecuted. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be hardships, suffering, persecution, insults. It's not just going to be easy breezy in the world for us. And we need to have that conversation. And Jesus is having that conversation in John 15. I think we'd do well if we opened our Bibles this morning or opened our apps. You can go to John chapter 15. And last time we were in John 15, we were talking about the true vine and and how Uh, abiding in Jesus, we bear much fruit for his glory and this beautiful picture of of how the church is a a living branch and extension of God in the world, of Jesus himself. But in verse 18, there's a change of conversation, a change of tone. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, if they followed my word, they'll keep your word, they'll follow your teaching. But they'll do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me, the Father. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates the Father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and the Father. But this has happened so that the statement written in the law, in their law, might be fulfilled that they hated me for no reason. Now, in John 16, 
at the very beginning, verse 1, Jesus actually doubles down on this warning of persecution, of trouble. He doubles down on it. And we're going to see this in John 17, where we're going to be in a couple weeks. But in John 17, he triples down on the warning. And it's very important to Jesus that we understand the dynamics of the kingdom and the space in which we'll find ourselves in being in the world but not of the world, the space we will find ourselves in uh, every day as followers of Jesus. It's very important that we understand those dynamics. Chapter 16, verse 1, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will actually think he's offering his service to God. They'll do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you'll remember I told you. I didn't tell you these things at the very beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to the Father who sent me. And not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's going to comfort them. We're going to see that. Uh, in ne- next week, and we're going to see how Jesus comforts them. But for now, this is some very straight talk about the reality of being a Christian in the world. In Jesus' famous parable, uh, the parable of the sower, he talks about the different soil types, but he talks about the seed that fell on rocky soil, how it's like the person, they hear the word, and immediately they have joy. I mean, like we'd go through the list of all the benefits of being in Christ and and people would just light up. That's very common. But if the joy doesn't establish a deeper root in Christ, that joy is short-lived. Because when distress and persecution comes because of the word, because of Christ, that person immediately falls away. That is the sad reality for far too many Christians today. They like the idea of following Jesus, but as they do it, the resistance becomes a stumbling block. Jesus says, I've got to tell you some things to keep you from stumbling. That's the goal. That you're not surprised. That you weren't able to not count the cost ahead of time. I'm telling you these things, Jesus says, to keep you from stumbling. The world will likely hate you just like it first hated me and just like it actually more deeply hates my Father in heaven. Now, we hate being hated. That is like the thing we dislike more than anything else, to not have the favor of our immediate family, our spouse, our kids, to not be liked, to not be loved, we hate being hated, especially negatively, like hate, right? Not just not being liked, but being hated. But do you realize that being hated is part of this life of following Jesus? A capacity to experience it, to weather it, and to thrive through it. That is part of this Christian life. It's not easy breezy. It's not a no, make no waves, Larry Lunchbox kind of lifestyle, if you will. But Larry did make waves because he shared the gospel faithfully. But anyway, it's one of the great ironies of life. That if you love God, that sounds like a very good and positive thing. That if you love God, everybody will be like, awesome. 
but that's not the case. You'll be hated by men. But actually, it's even bigger than that. Right before Jesus tells us in verse 18 that the world will hate us because of our love for God, look at verse 17. A new command I give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. It's also our love for people. I mean, that's the pivoting moment. He says, love one another. Oh, you're going to be hated. Love God. Oh, you're going to be hated. For all that our love for God and our love for people, for all the good that we hope it will engender, and it does, it may also just as well engender hatred. We should be ready that we not stumble or get discouraged when it seems, especially in the short term, our love for God and people is having the exact opposite effect that we think it should. Why might loving God and loving people engender hate anyways? It's so upside down, it doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. But we have in these verses an explanation, a a, a deeper window of insight, of understanding into why people do respond with hatred, the world we're speaking of, why the world might respond with animosity and hostility uh, instead of like applauding a love for God and people. Why does that happen? I want to walk you through the reasons that Jesus gives. And there's a, quite a few of them. You can write them down and make a list. And if you can't keep up, go online and download the manuscript. Uh, it's on there for now, you know, and you can, you can do everything. But, uh, but reason number one is you might be hated because the world already hates Jesus. All these ideas will build on each other, by the way. You might be hated because the world already hates Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about the culturally hip and cool Jesus, the progressive Jesus, the recently reimagined he gets us Jesus, you know. I'm not talking about uh, the many incarnations and reincarnations that our culture, that the church make of Jesus in order to make him more palatable to culture. I'm talking about the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus who wants you to die to yourself, to take up your cross, to follow him daily, to obey him daily, to believe on him, not just for eternal life, but even in the face of suffering and persecution and death itself. I'm talking about the biblical Jesus which may be an other, entirely other Jesus than the Jesus that's on the lips of the people around us. The Jesus who says things like John 14, 12, 48. Jesus said, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as their judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says some very hard-hitting and some very cutting and important things to us. And calls us to repentance and change. He doesn't endorse us. He's not applauding us along our, our path and our, our way of life. He's calling us to a whole other life. And a lot of people don't know the Jesus of Scripture. Uh, but if they did, they might not be so excited about him. And the things that he really does say. How many times... And this, I can tell you since I've been a minute, how many times has some well-meaning Christians come along, some author, you know, some blogger, whoever, theologian, how many times have people tried to reinvent Jesus and remarket Jesus 
and soften and blunt his actual teachings and words and give Jesus a kind of facelift in order to make him more acceptable and likable. How many times has that happened? It happens over and over. They hated Jesus and you will not be, uh, the world already hates Jesus, so you might be signing up for something there that you uh, need to be aware of. Now, reason number two, you might be hated for the simple fact that you're not of the world. This is the play on words that Jesus will use from here going forward, is that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, We may be hated because we're not the world's latest little darling, because we're not the world's own. We're not owned by the world. You know, if you're young in time, I hope before it's too late, you'll understand, you'll begin to see all the ways the world tries to squeeze you into the mold of its own pattern. The world will give you an A on your report card if you mimic its way of thinking, if you write the words it wants you to write, if you say the things it wants you to say, if you do the performative deeds that it wants you to perform, the world will give you an A and they'll tell you that you're A-OK and that you're good with them. The world will shower you with happy faces, affirmation and praise, all the hearts that you want, right? All the thumbs up, all the shares. It will reward you with viral fame if you mimic its values. But beware, if you step outside of the small box that the world has made for you to live in, and believe me, they have, if you step out of that small little box, you may very well have hell to pay. Paul in Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the mold, the pattern of this world. Don't let them squeeze you into this little space. Be transformed. Everybody wants to be transformative. Everybody wants to make a difference and be a change agent and send ripple waves through their world for good, right? Everybody wants that. Well, you're not going to do that by checking the boxes off that the world gives you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, the way to think differently is to not think like the world. The way to think differently is to take on the mind of Christ. If you want a truly transformative and helpful way of thinking, you would think like Christ, not like you're told to think. If you dare think righteous thoughts, the thoughts of the righteous one, Christ, if you dare act like Christ in righteousness, if you dare send the signal that you are not your own and most certainly not the world's own, If you send this signal that you've been bought at a price, that you have died to self and Christ lives in you, that you live to honor God and love God and serve God, if you send that signal, you will be hated. Christ's righteousness isn't cool. In fact, Jesus never, uh, he, he never snowballed us on this. He said his way is the narrow way. It's the narrow gate. It's the narrow path, and only a few follow in it. And the broad path and the broad gate, the one that leads to destruction, that the crowd's going through, is 
the way of the world. You might be hated if you don't march to the drumbeat of the world, if you're not of the world. It gets more nuanced. Reason number three, you might be hated because God's chosen you out of the world. He's chosen you out of the world. The meaning of the word church is ecclesia. It's the called out ones. We've been called away and out of something in order to benefit that which we've been called out of. You know, throughout scripture, God chooses and calls all sorts of people. And usually when we hear that word choose or chosen, we think of the the, the privileges and the benefits of being chosen for salvation or, or for grace or to be saved or forgiven or all these wonderful things. And, and, and to be chosen is to be blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's absolutely the case. But there's another aspect of being chosen that we totally gloss over. And that is the high call and the high cost of being chosen. Because when we're chosen, we're chosen for service. If Christ calls you, it's not just to salvation, it's to service, it's to mission. You're called to be God's instrument, his ambassador, his partner, his servant, and indeed more than a servant. You're called to be a friend of God, and to be a friend of God is to know the Father's business and to be part of the Son's business. Remember John 15, 14, we're no longer just servants, we're friends, we're insiders, we get the whole thing, right? To be salt and to light and to be light is to penetrate something. Not just to come up against it, but to penetrate into something. And not just to penetrate into something, but to fundamentally change that which you, it's to expel the bad of that thing, the the darkness of that thing. We are salt, we are light, we are an instrument we pierce into and fundamentally change right so men the world love darkness because their deeds are evil and there's a fear of exposure and so here we come we're chosen we're to be salt and light to be chosen is to be a disruptor of the status quo to be chosen is to actually make waves it's to penetrate and expel, it's to rescue and to redeem. It's to call people to repentance and and real change. But if salt loses its saltiness, it's like if light loses its light, right? If we lose our sense of calling, that we're not just chosen for the privileges of salvation, but we're chosen to actually be God's instrument to save the world, right? If we lose our sense of calling, we're no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. That's not my opinion. That's Jesus' clear teaching. If you lose your edge, your saltiness, if you lose the, the, the bluntness of your, you know, if you blunt your, your sharp edge, if you, you're no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Let me say it this way. It's when you lead that you create ripple effects and waves. It's when you lead that people's opinions become divided about you. They know what you think. They know how you live. They know your values. They know that you have Holy Spirit, Father, Son, DNA. They know that you are in the world but not of the world, that you're not their own, so to speak. It's when you lead 
the people's opinions become divided of you, but it's also when you lead that real change is affected. When you lay down, there's no ripple effects. There's no change. There's no transformation. You're like paint on the wall, not a threat to anybody. But if you embrace your call and understand your chosenness to be God's instrument in the world, you're going to be making waves. There's going to be opinions. It might feel like hatred, but it's going to lead to change. And it's what God's called his church to be, you see. You might be hated because you're not going to be exceptional to Jesus, reason number four. He says, if they hated the father, they hated the son. If they hate the son, then do you think that you will somehow be hated less? They hated the father's prophets. Remember the parable where the father sent his prophets and messengers to the vineyard and they killed the prophets and messengers? And then finally God, was, he'll send his son to the vineyard. Well, what did they do to the son? They crucified him. If you're a servant of God and you're bringing a message to the vineyard, do you think you'll be exceptional to Jesus and not be persecuted or insulted or whatever like everyone else has? Reason number five, you might be hated if you keep Christ's words. Jesus says, if they kept my word, they'll keep your word, right? Which he's saying, like, if you're teaching my doctrine and teaching my words and holding them out, you know, if they, did, if they kept it when I said it, they'll keep it when you say it. But no, the world rejects Christ's word. Therefore, they'll reject whatever word you'll speak in the name of Jesus. No, they don't want the Ten Commandments posted on the courthouse wall. No, they don't want it posted on the back of the classroom. No, they don't want Bible classes to be part of the core curriculum over their dead body, spiritually dead body. Uh, would they ever allow such words to be disseminated or shared in the core curriculum? Uh, they rejected my word, they'll reject your word. Reason number six, you'll be hated because religious ignorance is pervasive. Jesus says the world will resist you on account of my name because... They do not know the one who sent me. So Jesus is saying they're not just hating and rejecting me, but the Father as well. The Father's salvation history from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, all the way up to the present, all the prophets, the law, the kings, the whole kit and caboodle. They've been rejecting all of it long before Jesus, the promised Messiah in Christ, ever came and was sent to earth from the Father. The primary source of persecution worldwide for us as Christians comes from rival religious groups and rival sects. People that don't know the Father's heart, don't know the Father's purpose, don't know the history of God's salvation working from the very, very beginning into the time of Christ. They don't know the context into which Christ came. Some persecution even comes from Christian sects and Christian groups. But it is our great duty and it's our great pleasure to make the Father known to the nations. How do we make the Father known? We hold out the written word, the Old Testament. We hold it out because it's the context in which Christ came. And it's as important that people know the uniqueness of the written word as the fulfillment of that written word, the living word, Jesus Christ. 
we really hold out the written and living word intention. We, we hold them out together as a, as a pair. We preach and, and we translate the word and, and we declare the word. We're not just New Testament Christians. We're, we're old and new. We, we give the whole counsel of God out. There. Because when people understand the kind of salvation man needs and the kind of salvation Christ began, then they're warm to it. But until they do, when they're ignorant, they might hate you because they don't understand where you're coming from. What do you mean I need a Christ? I need a Messiah. I need a Lord. What, what do you mean I need to be saved? What do you mean I'm dead? What, if, if you don't hold out the larger scope of Scripture with the Father, uh, you know, they may not have a context to appreciate the salvation that you're sharing. You might be hated because moral guilt is actually real and objective. We're told that moral guilt is just subjective. It's just emotional. It's culturally conditioned. It's just something that we need to get over and move on and, and unshackle ourselves from. But what if that is wrong? What if moral guilt is objective and real because God is true and holy and just and we're made in his image and we can't just shrug off the image of the one in whom we've been made of, right? Moral guilt is real. In verse 22, Look at verse 22. Jesus mentions those who feel guilty and know they were without excuse. Why? Because of the words he has spoken. His words are so powerful that they cut right through. The Bible says God's word cuts through dividing uh, bone and marrow and, and you know, right down to the, you know, right down to the core. It cuts deep. I remember as a young person, I grew up in the church. I'll throw that out as a, as a caveat. And I was probably living a pretty marginal life. But as I, you know, grew up as a young man, I started to realize my own guilt and my own sense of responsibility to God. And, and I remember one time I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the Bible, but I'm just going to read the red letters because I know that that's exactly what Jesus said. They're quoting Jesus. I'll skip the black letters. I'll just go to the first red letters I find in, the, well, in Matthew's gospel. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount. I was probably like nine or ten. And his words just cut through all of my self-justifications, all of my delusions of whatever. And I realized that I was a sinner in need of grace and that only Christ could forgive the kind of person that I was. Those words cut through. Uh, it's not just the words of Jesus. It's also the works. Verse 24 he mentions those who feel guilty and are without excuse because of the works he's been doing, which are the Father's works. He says, the Father's abiding in me. I'm doing what he's doing. But again, people love darkness because their works are evil. And so when you're sitting there living a good life or a righteous life, or you have someone like Jesus doing good, cleansing the temple, advocating for the things of God, people don't like the antithetical life to their own. They fear exposure. Your goodness accentuates their evil, their problem. They don't like that. People love darkness, so their, their deeds are evil. They want to suppress any good around them. You know, nothing shines more brilliantly than a righteous person. And Whenever our world encounters a righteous person, and, and not just Christ, but just a person who's trying to become like Christ, even though they're struggling and maybe falling short of that. Whenever our world encounters righteousness, they begin slinging mud 
on that person. Uh, and the only thing that our, our world loves more than putting people on a pedestal is, is putting them on a platter to be consumed and devoured. You know, if, if you and Jesus can be a slob like the rest of us, suddenly you're not so threatening to us and we can just go on business as usual, living as we live. If, if, if I can lower you to my standard, I, I don't need to sweat anything. But when you live a righteous life, you know, the Bible says that righteousness shines like the noonday sun. In the morning, maybe not so bright, but as the day goes along, it shines brighter and brighter and brighter. There is no light that shines brighter than the light of Christ himself, his righteousness and work. And Jesus is saying that is going to have a convicting effect on people. Because they not only realize their guilt, they realize they have no excuse. And that they themselves have to respond to the words and works of Jesus. That they're accountable before that. Moral guilt is real. And as long as there's moral guilt and you're living for Christ, you're going to be churning it up. Churning it up. Now, where Jesus takes us in these verses is to this final idea, and I'll call it this, that you might be hated because depravity is metastasizing. Now, depravity, evil, wickedness is already bad news. You know, it's kind of like cancer. If you're told you have cancer, that's already bad news. But when you're told not only do you have cancer, but you have a level four metastasizing cancer, then you really are concerned. Then you're really, really concerned. We don't just have depravity. We have metastasizing depravity. I don't know, I've seen on the news lately that there are certain scientists that feel the magnetic fields of the earth are weakening. They feel, they believe that the magnetic poles of the earth are weakening so much that they could literally at some point flip north to south and south to north. They say the last time the magnetic fields flipped was about 780,000 years ago. I don't know how they know such things. And, uh, and there's all this debate about it, but whether... It's happening magnetically, I can't say, one way or the other. Uh, I'm not at that pay grade, okay? But morally, it seems clear that the magnetic poles of the world are not only weakening, but literally flipping before our very eyes. Do you agree? The moral poles of the world are literally flipping before our very eyes. That's depravity. In John 16, 2, Jesus speaks of a time when... The believers would be run out of the synagogues or believers might be run out of churches. Why? Because people, anyone who kills you, they think they're actually doing good. Anyone who kills you actually think it's their duty to God to do so. That the greatest good is to eliminate you. Depravity is when the magnetic poles of morality flip north to south, south to north. Depravity is when something that's good is called evil and something that's evil is suddenly called good. Uh, have you been in a hole the last couple of years? Have you been in a hole the last decade? There is a lot of good things that are now evil and there's a lot of evil things that are supposed to be really, really good for you. Depravity is when light is called darkness and darkness, light. It's when the greatest good is to no longer extinguish and expel evil, but rather it's to fan it to full flame and to teach others to do the same, including little children. Depravity is when you no longer extinguish that which is evil, 
but you begin to see it as your duty to extinguish that which is very good. The ultimate perversion and depravity, by the way, of Scripture, the most ultimate thing, is when the father sent his son to the vineyard and people thought it was a service to the father to crucify him on a cross. They hated him. And in their depravity, thought they were doing a service to God and killing him. That's how whack and upside down our depraved minds and lives and souls can become. And that is the world into which God sent his son Jesus, not only to die, die, but to redeem and to save those who have been taken captive by the evil one. That is the world that we live in, but that we've been called out of, to not be of, to not be owned by, but to serve and be instruments of God in. Do you see? What encouragement might we lovers of God find today to live in that kind of world? I'll tell you, I think we have a couple of choices. One choice is we can shrink back in fear, in the terror of that world, in the terror of the evil one, in the the terror of uh, the haters of God. We can shrink back in fear. There's a lot of fleshliness in that. Uh, we can be like the, 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 the seed that fell on the rocky soil and, you know. But the other option, I think, is we can lean out into that world in courage and in truth. And we can let the Spirit of God enable a response to that world, a service to that world that is quite frankly impossible in the flesh. And this is exactly what we're going to talk about next week. How might the Holy Spirit of God, the gift that we don't always know to ask God for, how might that gift enable us to be in the world and not of the world, to be redemptive instead of conforming to that world? John 15, 26. Love it. John 15, 26. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 7. Remember, he he says you're going to be driven out and all this stuff, right? You're going to be killed in the name of serving God. Verse 7 of chapter 16, he says it again. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor won't come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. Okay. You think God's going to go easy? Holy Spirit's going to go easy? You think the Holy Spirit's going to come and do a snowball job on the world about its guilt and accountability before God? Do you think that's what's going to happen? What Jesus actually says is my Holy Spirit's going to come. And in a way, he's going to exacerbate the problem of people's guilt even more. He's going to amplify it even more. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me. They have my words and works they don't believe. They're going to get convicted by the Holy Spirit of that. It's going to amplify the tensions for a while, don't you think? They'll be convicted about righteousness because I'm going to the Father 
and they're not going to be able to find me. You'll, you'll no longer see me. There's going to be no explanation except that I was of God, and that's going to cause the Holy Spirit is going to convict people about that reality, that gospel reality, but also about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged, and we are without excuse. I have still many other things to tell you, but you can't handle it right now. We'll, we'll just nibble on this for a while. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He'll speak not of his own, but he'll speak whatever he hears. He'll declare to you what is to come. He'll glorify me because he will take from what is mine. He'll declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That's why I say, I told you, that he'll take from what is mine and declare it to you. You know what Jesus is advocating that we do in a world that's filled with the hatred of God? Not just that we love God and love people, but that we double down in truth. Think of it this way, that you have the Father's testimony, the law and the prophets, the loud volume of that turned up to max amps. Uh, people are accountable to what has already been made known. Added to that... The living word, Jesus Christ, the son incarnate, sent from the father into the vineyard where they killed prophets and messengers of God before to make clear the message of salvation. And the, added to that, the volume of the spirit of truth, not just using the word to convict, but entering right into people's consciences to convict them individually in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Amplified even more than that, you, the church, you also will testify. What Jesus advocates is not shrinking back in fear and terror, but the leaning into courage and speaking truth in concert with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the law, the prophets, the apostles, the early church, the global church. We are entering into concert as the world hates us, to hold out salvation in Christ. Who wants to be God's instrument? Who wants to sign up this morning to be of utility to that God? Let's pray. Dear Father, you've called us to be not just servants but friends, to do your business. And we're willing to take the guff and to rely on your spirit and to learn to do that, to serve you faithfully in this world while not being of this world. Call us and invite us to be people of courage, a people of truth, not to shrink back, but to lean into proclamation of your gospel and your son Jesus, especially in this depraved world that's gone and flipped itself upside down in depravity. Help us to serve this world and may you save this world and may we be part of that mission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.